This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to episode 135 of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is one of America's all-time great filmmakers and writers on film, Peter Bogdanovich. Born and raised in New York, the 77-year-old first made his name through a trio of films he directed in consecutive years during the early 70s, when he was in his early 30s and at the vanguard of a new Hollywood sometimes described as the American New Wave. 1971's The Last Picture Show, 1972's What's Up Doc, and 1973's Paper Moon, each a period piece in the mold of the classic films with which Bogdanovich had become obsessed during his youth. Like the great filmmakers of the French New Wave, he too wrote about films long before he ever made them, in his case monographs for museums and articles for magazines, which led to a move to Los Angeles and to relationships with many of the great older filmmakers whose work had long inspired him. In L.A., a chance meeting with Roger Corman led to a job and ultimately to his first opportunity to actually make a film himself, 1968's Targets, starring an aged Boris Karloff in one of his last roles. That low-budget film, in turn, led to The Last Picture Show, an adaptation of a Larry McMurtry novel which resulted in eight Oscar nominations, including one for Bogdanovich for Best Director, two Oscar wins in each of the supporting acting categories, the end of Bogdanovich's marriage to production designer Polly Platt, the beginning of his relationship with one of the film's stars, Sybil Shepard, and many of the professional opportunities that followed, some of which Bogdanovich seized, and others of which, like the opportunity to direct The Godfather, he did not. I sat down with Bogdanovich at the Hollywood Roosevelt Hotel moments after he had participated in a TCM Film Festival Q&A and then sat through a screening of The Last Picture Show. Over the course of our conversation, we covered a wide range of topics, among them why a person who initially aspired to be an actor, spending years studying with Stella Adler, instead spent most of his career as a director, why he doesn't see his films as homages to anyone or anything, even if many others have described them that way, how his experience with and understanding of acting shaped the way he directs actors, including the three who won acting Oscars for performances in his films, how he handled the success of his early films, the critical and commercial failure of his next few, and the 1980 murder of the woman who, after Shepard, became his muse and lover, Dorothy Stratton, how he later clawed back from bankruptcy, heartbreak, and despair, not only as a director of the Oscar-winning 1985 film Mask and several others, the most recent being 2014 She's Funny That Way, but also as an actor, namely as the shrink of the shrink in The Sopranos, why he feels that, since The Sopranos, American TV has far outshined American cinema, and much more. So, without further ado, let's go to that conversation. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? 
I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At ChumbaCasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Mr. Bogdanovich, thank you so much for doing this. Really appreciate it. We always begin by asking our guests, just for the record, where were you born and raised, and what did your folks do for a living? I was conceived in Europe, born in New York, Kingston, New York, actually, upstate, near uh, Woodstock. My father was a painter, an artist. My mother was a mother, and eventually she became a frame maker. And did they take you to the movies often? How did you, how did you first fall in love with the movies? And why do you think you did? I went with my parents to the movies when I was young. I think the first movie I saw was Dumbo. Mm-hmm. I was about three. Mm-hmm. And I had to be taken out of the theater. I was screaming. <laughs> I've often thought it was some kind of infantine prognostication of the future. But <laughs> after about five, I started going, going with my parents and didn't have to be taken out of the theater. They, the first director they spoke of to me was John Ford, as a matter of fact because I was born in 39, and one of the first American films they saw in America was How Green Was My Valley and uh, The Grapes of Wrath and uh, Ford at his best. Mm. And why do you think you gravitated to, to the movies to an extent greater than most? Was there something, even as a young kid, that, that you can pinpoint? Must have been. I don't know what it was, really. I just loved movies. I loved the medium. Um, Everybody thought I was going to be an actor. I was acting when I was quite young. I started studying acting when I was 16 with Stella Adler. Mm-hmm. I was acting professionally in summer theater by the time I was 15. Turned 16 that summer, 1955. Everybody thought I'd be an actor. I decided to be a director mainly because I didn't like auditioning. Was the idea, though, when you were initially pursuing acting that you know, was the dream that you would be one of these people in the movies, or were you just as interested in theater acting or other things? No, I wanted to be in movies. But I, at the age of 13, my mother forced me to go to a Broadway show. <laughs> I didn't want to go, and I wanted to see the new Martin Lewis movie. But she, she, <laughs> she was quite insistent. She could be very insistent. So I went to see Henry Fonda in Point of No Return on Broadway, and I went to a play every weekend after that for the rest of the time I was in New York. And what was it along the line, I guess, after that, that that made you begin to appreciate not only the people that were acting, I guess, primarily in movies, but also behind the camera? What Was, was there a, a specific event or movie or something that made you curious about directing? Well, I think it was probably Citizen Kane. I saw that when I was 16, because they reissued it in New York in that year. 55. Mm-hmm. And it sounds really stupid, but the fact that Orson Welles directed it and was in it, it sort of made it clear to me that you can act and direct, because he did both mm-hmm. brilliantly. I think that's when it sort of hit me. Yeah, you can direct and act and make movies and all that. I think Kane did it. In the meantime, what what was it that inspired you to begin doing something that not a lot of I guess teenagers would have been doing, which was to actually reach out to these people who were responsible for the for the movies that you were. Well, that about. wasn't until a while later. I first I acted in the theater, uh, in the summer theater for mm-hmm. four four summers in a row, and then I was studying with Stella Adler from the time I was sixteen. I lied and said I was eighteen. <laughs> I was tall, so I got away with it. Right. Then, I don't know what happened. Around the time I was 18, I think, 18 or maybe pushing 19, I was with a bunch of actors from the studio, from Stella's. Five actors, we were sitting in a, in a diner, and I don't know why I said this, but I said, why don't I find a scene and direct you guys in this scene? So we found a scene with five good parts in, from Clifford Odette's play, The Big Knife. Mm-hmm which significantly was about Hollywood, um, because I was interested in Hollywood, mm-hmm. and uh, we put the scene on. Now, usually in scene class, you have two actors get up and do a scene, or one actor does a monologue, but suddenly five actors got up, and we did the, they did the scene, 
And Stella said, uh, the class applauded, and Stella said, bravo, darling, very, she's brilliant, but you've been directed. Who directed you? And she, they pointed at me, and I was standing in the back, and she turned to me and she said, bravo, Peter, bravo, brilliant. <laughs> and that was that. Yeah, so that I thought, is. well, that was pretty good. So, right. so I got the rights through a friend who helped me write to Clifford, and I wrote to Odessa in California, and he gave me the rights for some reason. I asked him years later why he had given me the rights. And he said, typical Odette's line, he said, I took a drop in the ocean. <laughs> well, while you were pursuing acting and directing as a young man there, you were also writing, continuing to write about film. And I wanted to ask you it how... It started a little later, 61, 62, 63. But I did write a column... Uh, about movies in my and theater in my high school paper. High school paper. Yeah, the Collegiate Journal. I don't know why I did that either. It just, <laughs> just happened. Like an idiot, I didn't know I could get in free if I wrote about them. And then when I got out of high school, somebody said, "You can get in free if you if you if you write if you send your tear sheets to the publicity people." And I did. And then I got in, started getting free. I got on all the screening lists. Right. And I was writing for a magazine, an Ivy League magazine, although I didn't go to college called Ivy Magazine, which was around for a short while. And so I got on all the screening lists and all the book lists and theater. I got into everything free, which was good because I didn't have any money. Right. <laughs> and that's how that started. I read recently Toby Talbot's book about the New Yorker cinema, and she mentioned in there that, which, first of all, we should say, which she and her husband Dan ran for so many years, and she mentioned that there was a young man who lived across the street, basically, who ended up working for them. How did, how did you first cross paths with them and, and that great place, and what did you end up doing there? Well, the New Yorker, there was a theater like two blocks from where my parents lived on Riverside Drive, and this was on Broadway in 80, between 88th and 89th, and we lived at 90th and Riverside, so it was very close. And it was a theater called the York, Yorktown, I think, or Yorkville or something. Mm -hmm. And Dan changed the name to The New Yorker. I just went in and met with him and said, hi, I live around the block, and I'd like to get in free. I write about movies sometimes. I'd written a program note for a couple of film societies or something, and I'd done those things for Ivy Magazine. He said, yeah, I read a program note you did on intolerance. He said, it wasn't very good. I said, no, it wasn't. I <laughs> it wasn't very good. I asked him if he'd like me to write program notes for the theater, and... First, he was paying me 15 bucks a week to do that, and then he paid me 35 bucks a week to do that. <laughs> and, they, and Toby mentioned that you were selling program notes, I guess, as well, from, also from a card table at the, in the lobby no, at one I, point? I, that was just for a minute. Just for a minute. But that was, so basically, you were in love and increasingly steeped in knowledge of, of, of classic Hollywood, the, the stuff that had happened before you were around. Oh, yeah, definitely. But there, there was, I was also very impressed with, films that were, that were coming out at that time. Because 1959, for example, was an extraordinary year. You had Rio Bravo, North by Northwest, Anatomy of a Murder. Those are three masterpieces. Mm -hmm. And a piece of junk like Ben-Hur won the Oscar. <laughs> now, when along the line did the Cahier de, de Cinema start? Because I'm wondering if those guys in, in France were of, of any influence to you, the idea that you could be a critic and also a filmmaker, or a journalist and also a filmmaker. Well, Kaye was around from the early 50s, but I didn't become acquainted with it until sometime in the, probably in the early 60s or late 50s, mainly through my friendship with Andrew Saris and a fellow named Eugene Archer, who was the fourth string critic for the New York Times. He and Andy were good friends. They palled around all the time. They'd come over to New York, I met them, I got to know them and Jonas Mekas and uh, Herman G. Weinberg, all that crowd. And then I started reading Calle de Cinema. So. Was that a factor in, in your decision, I guess, in not sure what year, I guess 64 or something, to pack up your wife, Polly Platt, and, and get a car and just go across to, to L.A. yourself to pursue this? Well, what happened was I, did a, I directed The Big Knife in 1959-60 season. I was 20 when it, when it opened. It was a success to steam, but it didn't make any money. And that's when I started writing about movies to make a little money for Dan and for some film societies and so on. 
And then the Museum of Modern Art asked me to do an Orson Welles retrospective and write the monograph for that, which was based, the reason I got the offer was based on a, a program note I did on Orson's Othello, which I had referred to as the best Shakespeare film ever made, which was not at all the common wisdom at that time. Then I did a season of summer theater in 61, and I was the artistic director for a season of summer theater at, in Phoenicia, New York, upstate New York, near Woodstock. And we did 10 plays. I, I picked four that I was going to direct. That's where I met Polly Platt, who became my wife after a while. Then one of the shows we did was a play called Once in a Lifetime by Kaufman and Hart, which was, uh, again, about Hollywood. And it was a big hit in summer theater, and so we thought we'd do it in New York, in Off-Broadway. Got the rights, but I meant to postpone it because I had an ulcer and so on. But around the same time, well, it's so complicated. I went to California in 61 on my own dime. I'd saved up enough money. I got Bob Silvers, who just died recently. Bob Silvers was a, sort of a friend, and he was at Harper's Magazine. And I got him to write a letter saying that they would consider anything I wrote. Or he just, that's what he said, but I didn't show them the letter. I just said, I've got an assignment from Harper's <laughs> to do a piece on Hollywood. So I went to California on my own dime, met a lot of people, mm -hmm. a lot of people, and wrote a piece eventually, after the summer actually, I wrote the piece, which was turned down by Harper's, turned down by The New Yorker, turned down by The Atlantic Monthly. And then... Coincidentally, at a screening of Hatari, at a dinner after a screening of Hatari, Paramount threw a dinner, and I met Harold Hayes. But I didn't know it was Harold Hayes, and I didn't know he was the managing editor of Esquire. I insulted him at his taste <laughs> in movies, and he insulted mine. But it was like a hawk scene. Anyway, a week later, I told him I'd written this piece, and I was the guy that insulted him at dinner. Do you remember me? He said, do you remember me? He remembered me very well. <laughs> and I sent him the piece, and he bought it. And they ran it as the lead piece in the August 62 issue. And he gave me immediately an assignment to do a profile on Jerry Lewis. So I went to California now on, on their dime, Paramount's dime, I guess it was. And I did a piece on Jerry Lewis, which was the longest profile ever published in Esquire. Hmm. And it was very popular. And so I started writing for Esquire pretty regularly. We did the Once in a Lifetime in 64. It was a flop for a variety of reasons. One of the main ones is we were underfinanced and we couldn't keep it going. Mm -hmm. It was a sad story. So I said, so Frank Tashlin, the director, whom I met when I interviewed Jerry Lewis, Frank Tashlin came through New York and he came up to our apartment and he said, what do you want to direct, theater or movies? I said, well, movies, really. He said, well, what are you doing in New York? We make them in L.A. <laughs> So nobody had said it quite that clearly before, right. so we, we saved up enough money, bought a very old car, and drove to California in 64. And when you got there, what were you doing before you got work? I mean, what... what I was writing for Esquire and TV Guide and yeah. the New York Times and so on. Right? And I guess the, the... Sounds like, from what I've read, the turning point was really just coincidentally being seated behind... Roger Corman, right? In front of Roger In Corman. front of Roger Corman. He was behind us, and yeah. the person I was with knew the person he was with. Yeah. And he said, oh, yeah, he said, I've read your stuff in Esquire. Do you want to write for movies? I said, yeah. So he gave me a job writing a script based on an idea that we had. He, he told me what kind of movie he wanted, a kind of a big adventure story. And we came up with an idea based on history, and we started to work on it. But before I could even write a word of it, he called and said he was making a movie called uh, The Wild Angels. It wasn't called The Wild Angels mm -hmm. then, but it was called All the Fallen Angels. Mm -hmm. And he asked me to he asked me to rewrite the script because he thought it was not a good first draft. So he paid me $300 to rewrite the entire script and no credit because I wasn't a member of the Writers Guild. And... So I worked on the film for 22 weeks, or 26 weeks, I think. And first he directed for three weeks, and then he, he kept saying, we're going to do this in second unit, because he didn't want to fall behind schedule. So who's going to direct the second unit? He said, I don't care who directs the second unit. My secretary can do it. Anybody can do it. You can do it. I said, well, I'd like to do it. He right. said, oh. And then so I got to direct the second unit, which wasn't the second unit, because I actually had a full unit, and I directed 
Peter and Fonda and Nancy Sinatra and Bruce Dern and so on. I directed the stars as well as the as well as doing action stuff and I, I did quite a bit of work. I worked three sh shooting for three weeks and then I edited my own stuff because Roger said Monty Hellman was too busy. <laughs> I learned how to make a picture. And with the exception of one other project, I think in in between the next thing was was your first shot at, at directing solo, right? Targets. Right. And to just contextualize it for people, I think, would you add like $125,000 or something? Is that the budget? Yeah, well, there was no budget. Roger just said, don't spend spend <laughs> as little as possible. And and he was giving you the the idea for for doing something was that, with the, the root of that idea was that he had an arrangement with Boris Karloff that he thought would be advantageous to... No, no. What happened is Boris owed him two days right. from another picture. And so he wanted me to direct 20 minutes of Karloff in two days, <laughs> then take 20 minutes of Karloff from another picture called The Terror, and then direct some other actors for 40, 40 minutes, and he'd have a new Karloff picture. <laughs> and, of course, I said, okay. And that's not what happened, though. I, we wrote a script that... He liked, and then he said, but you can't possibly do this in, with him in two days. And I said, well, he said, you'll have to cut it. You just said it was the best script you'd ever gotten to produce. <laughs> if I cut it, it won't be the best script anymore. Uh, so after much back and forth, he put up money for three more days, so we had Boris for five days. We and shot everything with him in five days, and the rest of the picture we did, and the, the, whole, the whole shooting was 23 days. Put me in your mindset, though. We're here. You're, you've been out in L.A. as a person living there for only less than four years, right, at that point? No, at that point, at that point, I've been there a year. A year. And you've never directed solo before. And here you are with... In the theater, I did. Well, but it, right, of, of a film. Right. And here you are with... Granted, at that point, he was not at the height of his stardom, but this was one of the greatest, greatest stars that this town had produced. What, were you intimidated? Were you excited? What were, what were you feeling? I was very excited. I liked Boris. He was very nice to me. He was a star, and we wrote it for him. And wrote it sort of what, like, what I thought he was like. We, we couldn't, we decided not to make him a heavy, because we thought Victorian heavy, Victorian horror wasn't horrible anymore when you have a kid going on a freeway and sniping at people and killing people. The, the guy in, at the University of Texas in, in Austin went up to the tower and shot about 30 people. That was kind of the first mass shooting. Yeah. And we did, a, we did a story based on that as modern horror. I don't know if you saw, they just made a documentary about that this past year that was pretty good. It was interesting. Didn't see it. First of all, I, I read a great line where a great story where at the end of the shoot with, with Karloff, everybody applauded and, and his wife mentioned to you that it really meant a lot to her because it hadn't happened for a while for him, right? Well, there was one, I don't know if it was the last day. I don't think it was the last day. Maybe it was. We were in a studio on Santa Monica Boulevard and we had Boris do a speech, which was actually from a play by Mom, it was a story, an anecdote about, or a little little fable, I suppose, about an appointment in Samara. And I, I thought Boris, he's had a great voice, and I had seen How the Grinch Stole Christmas, which Chuck Jones did with Boris narrating, and I thought, how can I make a movie without, how can I make a movie with Karloff and not have him tell a story? So he did it, and we did it in one shot, one 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 shot we the camera started way back and moved in on him into a close-up so he did it first take and it was great and that's when the i said cut print great and that's when the crew applauded and his wife said to me she had tears in her eyes and so did boris and she said you can you imagine how long it's been since anybody applauded for boris on the set that's great so what was the reception? I mean, how big of an audience would a, a Corman-produced movie like this get in those days? Because it seems like, is it correct to assume that the response to that movie is what made 
the last picture show possible? Yes, it did. But what happened was I didn't want AIP to release it, American International, because I thought that would put a stigma on the picture. So I tried to get a major to do it, and we finally got Paramount to pick it up. They paid Roger back what he spent, a little bit more. Mm-hmm. I think they paid 150000 and he'd spent 125000 mm-hmm. so he made he was, he was perfectly happy. Yeah. But after they bought it, shortly after they bought it, Martin Luther King was killed, and then Bobby Kennedy. And I think Malcolm X was shot in that period, too. And, of course, Jack Kennedy had been killed a few years before. So Paramount got the cold feet about distributing the film with that kind of violence, and it was about a sniper. Mm-hmm. So they sort of released it with a kind of an ad campaign that said, why gun control, which was like it was a documentary mm-hmm. or something. And it, it was not a turn-on for audiences. <laughs> and, but it got quite good reviews. Some bad, some very good. Like the New York Times did three pieces about it. Wow. Then there was a lot of stuff happened, but the next thing that important that happened was uh, Bert Schneider and B- at BBS, which had produced Easy Rider and Five Easy Pieces. I met with them. They saw Targets. They liked it, and they said, if you have, ever have something you want to, want to make, come to us. So I, Sal Minio gave me a copy of a book called The Last Picture Show. Uh, paperback, which I had seen in a drugstore and thought a good title. Mm-hmm. But I thought, I read it on the back, it said kids growing up in Texas. I didn't have any interest in that. <laughs> but Sal said this is something he'd always wanted to act in, but he was too old now and he thought I'd enjoy it. So I read it and I said, gee, this is a tough, tough to make this into a picture. But I, I, I was trying to figure out how to make it into a picture. And I figured it out, which is kind of stupid, but I said, just make the book. So we took things out, but basically we, we, we told, the, basically we did the book, which is a very good, very effective book. And Larry McMurtry, in my opinion, writes the best regional dialogue since Mark Twain. It's just, he's got an impeccable ear for it. And you, when you're doing a picture, you, you just hope you have good dialogue. Yeah. You know? So the dialogue was almost entirely from the book. There were some scenes that were written that weren't from the book, but not many. So can you talk about how you assembled what was a a big and and amazing ensemble here for this, where everyone from Ben Johnson, who I guess must have been somebody you grew up loving in the John Ford movies, through Cloris Leachman, who most people didn't think of in the context that you ended up using her. So just how did this all come together? Well, Ben Johnson I wanted... Couldn't figure out who to cast for that part. It was a difficult part to cast. And at one point we talked about Jimmy Stewart, whom I knew because I'd done a piece about him for Esquire. But then I thought Jimmy Stewart in a small town, it just doesn't work. So I wanted somebody Western but not well, not terribly well-known. And then I had, I had met Ben Johnson while I was doing a piece on Ford, and he was shooting Cheyenne Autumn in in Monument Valley, and, I, and ben, ben was on that picture. I met him then, and I thought, Ben Johnson, that's it. And then it wasn't easy to get him. He didn't want to do it, and he turned it down three times. Finally, I got Ford to call him. And Ford called him and told him to do it, and then he still didn't want to do it. <laughs> he said there were too many words, and he was worried about playing it, and so on. He finally agreed to do it, reluctantly. Sybil I saw on the cover of a magazine, Sybil Shepherd. And I thought she looked the part. Cloris came in and read, and she gave a very good reading. And she was attractive, but I knew that she could also look plain. So that was, she was, gave a very good reading, and that was why we cast her. And Ellen Burstyn came in before we cast Cloris, and she read for all three of the women, for sort of 40-year-old women. And she gave a great reading of all three. So I said this. I never did this before or since. I said, go home, call me tomorrow, tell me which part you want to play. Wow. And she called and said, I want to play the, the girl's mother. So she got that part. And um, Eileen Brennan I had seen on Broadway, off-Broadway, in a play called Little Mary Sunshine. 
And I thought she was brilliant, and she came in, I liked her, and that was how that, that happened. Jeff Bridges came in and read. Tim Bottoms came in and read. Randy Quaid, we found in Austin, Houston, Texas, where I went to cast, went to Houston and Dallas mm -hmm. to look for regional actors. That's about it, I guess. Well, so when once everybody was in place and this and this thing was was going, how how quickly did you realize that that you had something pretty that was working well? It was coming together. It would seem unusually well in, in this case. I mean, you've just seen the movie before you came to do this interview. It still plays great. So, but in the course of making it, did you realize that it was it was on track for that? I don't know if I did, Scott. I thought it was good. I thought the performances were very good. And I thought Targets was a good action picture, but I didn't think the performances, except for Boris and Tim O'Kelly, was, was, were that great. But So I really focused on the acting. And then Orson Welles had given me good advice about shooting it in black and white because he said it's the actor's friend, and he's right. As he said, every performance looks better in black and white. Mm -hmm. He's right. Mm -hmm. Because black and white makes you focus on the person and not on his on their looks their beautiful blue eyes or their beautiful hair or whatever it focuses the attention on the dramatic aspects or the or the comedic aspect i asked bert schneider if we i wanted to do it in black and white he said why i said well, i think the acting will be better and i think it will get, the, get give us the period bit quicker it was supposed to be early 50s and he, he just, he went to his brother, who was the head of Columbia, and they agreed, and they said, okay. I asked him later on why he had agreed to it, and he said he thought, he thought it would be a novelty. Yeah. And that was it. So I, I thought we had a pretty good picture, but I didn't think it would, I didn't, I don't know, I didn't, I did tell both Ben and Cloris that they would win Oscars, <laughs> and they did. During the making of it, you yeah, told Yeah, during them. the making. Yeah. yeah. The Cloris story, I have, if I can prompt you, only because that's the most amazing that, she she was not happy with her particularly one take, which probably ended up securing that Oscar. Oh yeah, it was the last scene, and she kept saying to me, "Can you know, can I can I do this scene with you?" I said, "No." <laughs> she said, "I want to do it for you, so you can see how I'm going to do it." I said, "I don't want to see it." She said, "What do you mean you don't want to see it?" I said, "I don't want to see it till we shoot it." Why not? Because I don't. And the reason I didn't was because of something Henry Fonda had told me which is that Ford, when he made the last scene in The Grapes of Wrath between Fonda and the mother, Jane Darwell, he wouldn't let them do it in front of him. He said, I'll see it when you shoot it, when right. you shoot it. And I could understand that because the director is the only audience that a movie actor has. And if they played it for the director, the audience, already once, it, it loses freshness. And the scene with Cloris was the one where she's yelling at Timothy Bottoms at in the her end, kitchen. It's the last scene in the picture. Yeah. Very touching scene. Yeah. And very well written by, in the book. And we, we just did the scene as it's written. And Cloris was great in it. And, and she did that when she's yelling at him. She did it so well. She was shaking. She was so, she was shaking. Her voice was trembling. She, her hands were shaking. And I said, cut, print, we got it. You just won an Oscar. She said, I can do it better. I said, no, you can't. And she was pissed off. She's still pissed off. But I didn't let her do another take. I said, Cloris, you won the right, goddamn right. Oscar. Move on, yeah. So how did how did the success of that movie, which included, I think, eight nominations, several wins, for two, two, two wins, two both, wins yeah. both supporting categories for Ben and Cloris, how did, how did all of it affect your life professionally going forward and and personally, there was a lot that changed in, in the immediate aftermath. Yeah, right? we all went to Texas as one person. We came back as somebody else. Well, my marriage broke up. I fell in love with Sybil. My father died. All that happened while we were shooting. Then the picture, you know, got extraordinary reactions every time it was shown around town. So that long before it opened, there was a buzz on the picture. And my agents showed it to Steve McQueen who was looking for a director for The Getaway, and they hired me to do that. And then Streisand's people heard about it, and they, they were looking for a director at Warner Brothers to do a picture with Barbara, and I didn't like the script they offered me. They were wanting a drama, right? A, a kind of comedy drama. Co okay. 
called The Glimpse of Tiger, I think it was called. Barbara really wanted to work with me, so John Kelly, who was the head of Warner's at the time, called me into his office. He says, Barbara really wants to work with you. I said, well, I don't like the script, John. He said, well, okay, look. If you had to do a picture with Barbara Streisand, <laughs> what would you do? Right. And I said, oh, well, I don't know, screwball comedy, you know, like Daffy Dame, square professor, she screws everything up, it turns out okay, like bringing up baby. Yeah. He said, do that. And it was very... It was, he was a good studio head. He said, just do it. And so I said, can I produce it? He said, yeah. So we, with, between the time we had that meeting and shooting was only about three months. Wow. One of the things that you said that I read and found very interesting was, quote, directing for me has always been tied up with acting because when I direct, much of the time I show the actor what I want. It's easier than trying to explain it, close quote. Do you think that the reason you've managed to get such great performances out of so many people, often in roles that are unlike anything else they've ever done before, is because they feel more comfortable in the presence of somebody who understands what they what they do because that person has done it? What are you... I think so. Yeah. I think that's true. I once asked Jimmy Cagney uh, how many directors he had worked with in his career, and he said, about 80, but I'd only call five of them really directors. <laughs> I said, what's a real director for you? A real director for me is if I don't know what the hell to do, he can get up and show me. And I've shown a lot of actors what I had in mind because it's a lot easier than trying to explain a nuance. Yeah. Ernst Lubitsch was a great director and uh, I really admired him and he used to show everybody how to play it. Really? <laughs> yeah, he, he, Senia Hasso told me that he, she played a French maid in Heaven Can Wait. He said he did the French maid. She said, she said it was very good. <laughs> and Jack Benny worked for him for To Be or Not To Be. And, and I said to Jack, how was Lubitsch? Is it true that he acted out all the parts? He said, yeah. He did, yeah. Well, was he any good? And Jack said, well, he was a little broad, but you got the idea. <laughs> I don't do that with everybody, but sometimes I, I, it helps. Sure. I think it, the fact that actors know that I have been an actor and a, and a worked in the theater and, and been on the other side of the mm -hmm. lens gives them some assurance. After What's Up, Doc, which was, which was also very well received, you now had your next movie, Paper Moon. And I just, first of all, how did it even come together when, just to recount for people, it's being made by Paramount, which is run by a guy whose wife had an affair with the person who you were wanting to cast in the male lead. It just seems like that would have just, it's an amazing thing that it even got green-lighted under those circumstances. Yeah, well, Bob Evans was a great guy. Yeah. And I had two pictures in the top ten in variety for the two pictures at the same time. Right. Which didn't happen that often. And Ryan was in one of them. So it was pretty tough for him to turn it down. Turn it down, yeah. Um, he didn't. He wanted. To, he wanted me to use anybody but Ryan. But, <laughs> but I, I wanted to use Ryan and Tatum, because I thought Tatum had a great voice and a good look for the picture. Had you been looking for other people before you no. saw her? You just knew that she and Ryan would have a dynamic. Well, you know, it's funny because I was going to do a western for Warner's, and Larry McMurtry and I worked on a western for quite a while called Streets of Laredo, and it was going to be with John Wayne, Jimmy Stewart, Henry Fonda. Sybil, the Clancy brothers, Ben Johnson, and, and so on. And it was written for those people. Larry and I worked on it for a long time. Duke turned it down. And as a matter of fact, Paramount came to me while we were working on the Western and said, will you do this thing called Addie Prey, which, which turned out to be Paper Moon. And I said, I can't because I'm, I'm doing the Western. When the Western got, when Duke turned it down, I said, I'm not going to make it. Right. And I said to Larry, go ahead and write it as a novel because he'd written 350 pages, and it was just poured out of him. Yeah. And he really knew the Western milieu. And he did eventually about, I think, some years later, 13 years later or something, he did Lonesome Dove, which was based on that screenplay. Oh, wow, wow, wow. In fact, he bought the screenplay back from Warners for $80,000 so that he could use the characters. So when, I, when the Western fell apart, I went to Paramount, I said, uh, and they came to me again, actually, and said, will you do this now? And I read the script, and I said, well, it needs a lot of work. And I read the book, and I said, well, it's got some good stuff that isn't in the script. 
So I agreed to do it. And the reason I wanted Ryan was because I liked Tatum, but also I had promised Ryan a part in the Western. And Larry calls me and says, I can't write for Ryan O'Neill. <laughs> so I had to tell Ryan he wasn't going to be in the Western. Then the right. Western never got made. But I felt I owed Ryan a, a picture, so that was it. Is there a secret to getting a great performance out of a child as you did with Tatum, who was only 10 and is still no, the young... She was nine. Nine. Actually, she turned nine during the picture. Turned nine and then won the Oscar at 10. She's still the youngest person to have won an, an acting Oscar. Some people have said that they assume most child performances are the result of many, many, many takes, and then you just have to piece it together in the editing room. Was that the case with Tatum, or was she actually doing it on the set? It varied. Yeah. She'd never acted. She didn't know what we were doing. She got to know what we were doing. She got liking it. But, you know, a lot of it was showing her what I had in mind or, or helping her with the readings or whatever. There was one scene that I felt was very important. It was a scene that I asked Alvin Sargent to write, which wasn't in the script. I said, we need a first act, end of the first act scene, where the two of them have a big argument and they almost break up, and then they make up, and then they're stronger than ever. And that's the end of Act One. So I asked him to write, and it was a five-page scene, and very well written by Alvin Sargent. And I decided that it should be without a cut. Ryan had to drive the car. Tatum had all sorts of business. She had a, a cigar box and a radio and a map and all kinds of stuff. Very difficult. We did it. We tried to do it 25 times the first day, and we never got it. And then we came back a couple of days later and did it 15 more times, and we finally got it. Oh, my God. But I thought it was important that we do it without a cut because the audience, for those people who look at that sort of thing, would see that she did it. It couldn't have been manipulated because right. she actually did it right. without a cut. And she did, but after that many takes. Yeah, well, it took a few takes. Yeah. <laughs> so the generation that that you came up with as a filmmaker who were simultaneously more or less having success have come to be described as new Hollywood, right? What is your understanding of what that means and, and what did you all share in common? Was it just that you all grew up, unlike previous generations, having watched and studied movies? Is that what the, the main common thread was? Probably. And who were these other folks that were labeled that? Well, uh, everybody, you know, Coppola and Friedkin and Rafelson and Dennis Hopper and Scorsese, Scorsese and all those cats, De Palma. And as you all were making a name for yourself, the, the other interesting thing was that it was sort of overlapping with the, with the end of the line for a lot of the people who had inspired you guys to get into this. And I know I, there was a quote of yours that I want to just read back because I thought it was interesting. Quote, I felt there was something wrong with the fact that John Ford wasn't working and I was, that Orson Welles couldn't get a picture made and I could. I felt awkward about that, especially since I learned a great deal from those people. Close quote. So did that have something to do with why, even as you were pursuing your own career, you continued to interview and befriend and, and, and spend time with these people who were still around but not really being appreciated? Yes. That's why I like them. They were very, very nice to me. Even Ford, who was grouchy and, and crusty and insulted me most of the time, but I knew he liked me, so. <laughs> yes, that was the reason. I, 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 I liked them. I actually enjoyed their company more than my contemporaries. I wasn't that interested in my contemporaries. <laughs> and they were just, you know, I just wasn't interested. Yeah. I liked the old timers, the older men. Jerry Lewis once was interviewed about me and said that I think Peter's looking for his father. It's true that my father died during the making of Picture Show, and I, I missed him enormously, and I probably was, in a way, looking for surrogate fathers. How old were you when you were making Picture Show? 31. 31, yeah. Another thing, I guess, that deals with the past is that all three of those first big ones, Last Picture Show, What's Up, Doc, and Paper Moon, were steeped in the past and were, in a sense, I would. they played as homages. I don't know if they were intended, but they played as homages to genres that weren't really being made anymore. And so I just wonder 
is that purely coincidental or was that part of an effort on your part to revive those those genres? No, I think it was just it just happened that way. Yeah. I don't know what genre Last Picture Show falls into. I don't think it does really. Doc was consciously a screwball comedy. Paper Moon was again a picture I don't know that it certainly was the anti Shirley Temple movie. Uh, although uh, some critics said it was my Shirley Temple homage. I never thought about these pictures as homages. I hated that. Mm -hmm. It was the standard Bogdanovich review. He's doing an homage to this person. That's a lot of shit. <laughs> I was doing pictures that I wanted to do. And they weren't homages. I respected the Hollywood past, and I think there were some great films made and some great filmmakers. And I asked those filmmakers for advice. Often and sometimes they offered it without being asked, and it was very it, it was very helpful. Yeah, I mean Howard once said to me, "Always cut on movement, and then nobody will notice the cut." <laughs> now that's a very simple statement, but I, I can't tell you how often I've thought of that. Yeah, another person who I know became one of these maybe the ultimate master in your mind, and who you got to know was was Orson Welles, and. The thing that I, I, I see in common between you two, and I just want to ask about it, is that you both achieved success at, at such a young age, an unusually young age in, in Hollywood. He, I think, was just 26 when he did Citizen Kane. 25. 25. And then Magnificent Amberson's right on top of it. And, and then you, as you just said, were 31 when you started on that string of three in three years, which is the other amazing thing. There's not a lot of time between these. And so I just wonder, is that ultimately... Is it healthy to have that much success out of the gate, or does it set it up in a way so that whatever you do after that, people are are comparing not on the uh, not evaluating on on its own merits, but in comparison to the things that first made them like you? Well, you only get discovered once, right? Right. And uh, everybody discovers you, and then they say, "Oh my God!" And then after you've been around for a few years, they say, "Oh." <laughs> He's doing his old tricks again, or something. <laughs> uh, this is his homage to somebody. Right. <laughs> you know, it's just it's pretty standard. So when the films that that immediately followed those those three that I, I had three flops in a row. Daisy Miller. Yeah. Um, at Long Last Love. Right. And Nickelodeon. Right. And in all three cases, well, not not Daisy Miller. Daisy Miller was a movie that I wanted to make because I wanted to find a good part for Sybil. And I thought it was a touching story, and it, it had a lot of resonance for me in terms of the male-female situation, the battle of the sexes, the fact that men don't understand women. Mm -hmm. And that's part of the biggest problem that we've got still mm -hmm. going in the world. So Daisy Miller was a, dis was a Henry James story, which I liked. Mm -hmm. I knew when I was making it that it was not a particularly commercial picture. But I had made three very commercial pictures, or at least they turned out to right, be commercial. Right. And I thought, well, I can make one that wasn't. It didn't cost anything, two million two, and but it was a it was a, it was a financial. It was, it was not a success financially. Mm -hmm. However, it got some very good reviews. Mm -hmm. So I was pleased with it. And it's pretty much the it's very much the way I intended to be. At Long Last Love was released in a version that was not my what I liked. What was that? Well, it was just everybody rushed me into putting it out because the studio loved it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but it was not the right cut. And Nickelodeon was recut and was in color when it should have been in black and white. And I wanted unknowns, and it was just a lot of compromises on those two films. And I paid the price of compromise, which is that you, it doesn't work. So you personally, aside from Daisy Miller, feel that the other, the other two were not what you hoped they could be, or do you feel that they were misunderstood in a way? No, I, I, they, they weren't right mm -hmm. when they came out. Now, and unusually, they both have sort of interesting subsequent stories. Years later, many years later, I got a call from somebody who says, Netflix is playing at Long Last Love. I know, really? So I looked at it, and I, I looked at it on Netflix, and I said, wait a minute. I cut that scene. Where did that come from? Wait a minute. That scene was longer, and now it's shorter. Wait a minute. I cut that scene. Now it's back, but it's good. Why did I cut it? Right. And I, I went called Fox because I had final cut, and I said, you know, you guys have a thing on Netflix. Who made this cut? I didn't. Right. But I like it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was close to my first cut. Right. Well, Jim Genopoulos called me. He says, 
or I called him, I can't remember. And yeah. He says, he's, let me get this straight. There's a cut of a long last love that you didn't approve or didn't do, and you like it? <laughs> I said, I love it. Right. He said, that's one for the history book. <laughs> and did you ever get to the bottom of how it ended Yeah, up? I did. Uh, the guy who did it had died two years before I discovered this, a guy named James Blakely. He was the head of editor- editorial at Fox for many years. Sad that he died before I could thank him. Mm-hmm. And it turns out he had been a Cole Porter fan when he was, he was a Cole Porter fan, and he'd acted in Cole Porter musicals when he was a kid. And obviously he saw that we were ruining the picture, yeah. and he put it right. Amazing. And Fox loved it too in that version. We had a screening and 500 people loved it. Right. So they put it out on, on Blu-ray. Do you think that they knew they were putting out this guy's version instead of yours when it went to Netflix? I don't think they knew. They didn't know, yeah. That's amazing. No, and then Nickelodeon should have been in black and white. And I finally got uh, the Columbia to put it out in black and white and with an additional five minutes that had been cut out. And I think the version that's in black and white with the five minutes is is good. Mm. So having shot out of the, the gate like a rocket... At, at the beginning, I guess I'm mixing metaphors, but whatever. Right. To then have a few that didn't work as well, was that tough to, you know, really, did that make for a tough time, especially simultaneous to some of the personal things that you were dealing with at the, well, at the same time? Well, the big, the big thing was both at Long Last Love and Nickelodeon were compromised in many ways, I felt. And so I decided to take some time off, get back to basics. So I took about three years off, and Sybil and I went around the world twice and had a nice time. Then I decided to do this very oddball picture called St. Jack. Uh, it's a long story how that happened, but anyway. And I, we went to Singapore, and we shot it exactly the way. I didn't compromise on that. I refused to compromise. Did it for, in fact, tried to get Paramount or somebody to do it. They wouldn't do it with Ben Gazzara, and I wanted to do it with Ben Gazzara. You were a big Ben Gazzara fan. Yeah, and I had met him on John Cassavetes' set when he was doing opening night, and, and I had loved Ben from the time I was a kid. I think the first review I ever wrote for the high school paper was about <laughs> Ben Gazzara in his first play, End as a Man, off-Broadway, wow. back in 1954, I think. <laughs> so I just said, no, I'm not going to compromise on this. I'm doing it with Ben Gazzara, and Roger Corman said, I'll do it with Ben Gazzara. And so we, we made it for nothing. Right. Picture cost about a million dollars. And I shot it in Singapore. And that's a long story because we weren't, they banned the book in Singapore. So we couldn't tell them we were making the book. We told them we were making something entirely different. <laughs> I even wrote an outline, I wrote a treatment of a script that never existed. <laughs> this is like Argo or something, the way you're yeah, describing it. Yeah, it was, it was very funny. <laughs> yeah. It's very, it's very, I, I've never been back to Singapore because right. <laughs> they found out. Well, hopefully the statute of limitations has, has expired. But. And then I did uh, They All Laughed, which was my most personal film. And Dorothy was murdered after, Dorothy Stratton was murdered after it finished shooting, and that put me back. For, uh, that, that was like an atom bomb. Well, I want to, without, you know, crossing any any line of, of, of comfort. I just wonder if I can ask, you know, the, it seems like she was your great muse in a lot of ways. Sybil had, had been also for a number of them, but she was, and also sounds like the, the great, you know, love basically of, of your life. And for people who very few people knew her anywhere near as, as well as you. And I just wonder what was the, what was the world robbed of when that happened? What was, what was it that made her that special? Well, but apart from her beauty, which was not just external but internal, she was very wise and very sensitive person and uh, very poetic, wrote beautiful poetry. She was very young and very very intuitive and talented and just uh, just a great girl. I wrote a book about her yeah. called The Killing of the Unicorn because I, I took about three years off to write the book because I felt that nobody really knew her. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know a lot of things about what had happened to her. So I did a lot of research, talked to a lot of people, and wrote a book, which... um, Was that cathartic? 
Well, people ask that, not really, but yeah. it was it was very painful to write. I had an editor that was very good at, at Morrow, a guy named John Dodds, who had lost his wife, and so he had a sense of tragedy, and he was a very good editor. I would send him the pages, and he would edit it, and I didn't want to even want to read it after he'd done it. I, I just let him check everything. And that, that was, it wasn't cathartic, but... It, it was. It didn't end the misery or right. the pain, but it, I, it was for Dorothy that I wrote it, so that people would understand a little bit better what she was like. Has what happened with her or to her colored your views about gun violence in movies? I, you wrote something for the Hollywood Reporter about this a, a while ago, and I, I thought it was interesting. But basically, you know, the argument is that most people, I, I think, in Hollywood are of the opinion that there should be some form of, of gun control generally in society, but they get a little bit uncomfortable when there's a suggestion that gun violence in movies or TV might also be contributing to the problem. Do you feel that it is? Yes, in a word. Mm -hmm. It makes it seem like it isn't that important because you got 20 people getting killed. One person getting killed is pretty rough, as I learned. Mm -hmm. So 20 people is pretty rough. And there's just too much shooting in pictures, too much people getting killed in video games. It's how many people can you shoot? I mean, it's just... It, Orson Welles said to me back in the 70s, early 70s, he said, we're debasing our audience, we're deadening the audience, we're, we're, we're making them insensitive to, to, to violence. Yeah. What do you think generally of movies today? Not much. <laughs> Is there? Are I'm there so a... sick of, uh, of superheroes. I, I, you know, I don't like cartoons. I mean, I don't like those comic books. Yeah. So I don't particularly want to see a movie about it. How about the the other quarter of the year when they at least try to do something artistic? At the end of the year. At the end of the year, when we've got we've just come through the the famous La La Land Moonlight season. Do you think the best of of a given year today still can hold its own opposite the, the great movies that you grew up on, or do you think it's just totally the level has, has devolved? It's, it's devolved. Yeah. We don't have movies on a level of How Green Was My Valley or The Grapes of Wrath or Rio Bravo or Anatomy of a Murder. Those are great films. We haven't got those. We just don't. I, I think that there's always talent. There's always talent around. Wes Anderson's talented, Noah Baumbach's talented. I like them. I like their movies. Quentin's talented. And, you know, there are other directors, I'm sure, that maybe I don't know. And I'm sure there's many foreign directors that I am absolutely unacquainted with. But there isn't a lot of talent. There's some talent. And, uh, and it's great. There's always some talent. But it's not, it's not the way it was in the golden age, let's face it. Sure. Quentin seems like almost a kindred spirit of, of yours in the sense that he also grew up worshiping maybe different movies, but do you feel a connection with him in the sense well, that... we're friends. You are, yeah. yeah. In between continuing to, to make great movies from, from The Mask through The Cat's Meow through even more recently, I think She's Funny That Way, you've continued to write about movies, which I, I think people, if they haven't read Who the Devil Made It or Who the Hell's In It, which feature your interviews, they need to do that. Do you love writing about movies as much as you love making them? No. Making them still takes the... Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. I don't... I, 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 I'm happy to publish those books. They're intended to be celebrations of the talented people that, that they're about. The interviews I did with the directors for who, who the devil made it, those were very precious to me, particularly Howard Hawks, Hitchcock, I did a whole interview book with Orson Welles. I did a whole interview book with John Ford. They're still in print. All these books are in print, actually. Yeah. Oh, they're great. And Movie of the Week, where I had a column in the New York Observer for a while, and I used those columns to do a book of 52 movies that I liked. I just sent in a new book that I've written for my publisher, Knopp. It's called But What I Really Want to Do is Direct. <laughs> great title. My... My first picture shows, 1965 to 1971. It covers how I got into pictures, basically. Incidentally, I just have to ask, did you ever direct yourself acting in something? 
Yeah, in Targets and St. Jack. Oh, of course, of course. Sorry. So is that as hard as it sounds like no, it would be? No, because I had somebody walk it for me. You did? I had an actor walk it. And I would tell him, I would walk it first, then right. I'd show him what it was, and then I'd look at it through the camera. Right. So on. The Sopranos really helped to usher in the platinum age of TV, what they're calling today, you know, where where many people would argue that American TV today is better than American movies. No and question about it. No question, but you feel. Oh, yeah. So for somebody who once said, quote, I always thought of myself as an actor who directs, whereas most people thought of me as a director who writes, close quote, it must have been pretty nice to get a call from as respected a person as, as David Chase saying, I want you as an actor. Yeah, it was great. It started actually back in 1993 when David was doing a show called Northern Exposure. And they called me. The book I had done on Orson had just been published the year before. And they were doing a kind of tribute to Orson in this Northern Exposure episode. And David called me and asked me if I would come to Seattle where they were shooting and play myself in a thing about Orson, kind of about Orson. Mm -hmm. And I said, sure. So I came, went up there and did it. And after the first couple of days, David called me. He says, have you ever acted before? I said, I started out as an actor. <laughs> I said, why? Am I terrible? He said, no, no, no. He says, you're, you've got a lot of presence. You should do more acting. I said, oh, thank you. Seven years later, he calls me again <laughs> and says, Sopranos and, and so on. And that was, that was fun? Oh, I loved doing it. It was great stuff. So in the, the remaining minute or so, I just want to ask you a few very sort of superlative type questions. What do you regard as the best film you've ever seen? Best film I've ever seen? Yes. Oh, God, I can't. I, uh, there's too many. Too many. It's probably by Renoir, however. Jean Renoir, I think, was the greatest greatest director of the Western world. And you don't have the favorite of his? Well, there's so many that are good. I mean, Rules of the Game is amazing. Yeah. And Grand Illusion. What is the best film you haven't seen, according to other people? You know, what's the one that people would be surprised you haven't seen? I don't know. I think I've seen most of the pictures that I want to see. I read something, though. You said, like, E.T., for instance, might be one that you hadn't. Like, is there are there others that would be surprising to people that you might not have? I haven't seen E.T. Yeah. Yeah. I don't like science fiction movies. That's my problem. Right. And we're living in an age of science fiction. I'm sure it's good. Steven's a good director, but I just... I just, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not interested in alien movies. Right. What was the interview that you did that meant the most to you to get to do? Well, Orson was great. Yeah. That went on for years. I was, I was, Hawks was, I think, the, one of the best interviews I did. Orson was the, probably the most fun to interview. Because he's a character. Well, because he, he knows everything. Yeah. About everything. He just knew a lot. What was the one that got away as far as an interview? Buster Keaton. You really wanted that? I wanted it, and he died just as I was about to try to find him. And he lived about two blocks from me, it turned out. Lastly, you said, quote, older movies are available now in a way that they never were before, and there's less interest than ever. It's just awful. It's like ignoring buried treasure, close quote. I saw that in a recent interview. Why is that, and, and can it be turned around? Are there If there aren't you know, I'd like to think that similar to you and I and a lot of other people that I know were happy to discover older movies and seek out, you know, the people who made them for interviews and stuff. But it does seem like it's swimming upstream. Is there, are you hopeful that in future generations, these movies that made you fall in love with the movies and that you made with your generation and are people going to appreciate them or is it, is it, uh, is it a losing battle? Well, in America, it's difficult because we've never had a, a tradition of culture in this country. And unfortunately, film culture is the most recent art form. I hope so. I mean, never have films been more available yeah. than now. And there's little, the younger people are not interested in anything made after, before 1990 right. or, 19, right. or 2000, which is ridiculous. My father was a, not only a brilliant painter, but he knew the history of painting as he knew the history of music. And that's what inspired me to go ask these questions of all these directors. I figured if I was going to make movies, I ought to know something about what happened before. Because art is, is a kind of, that movies particularly, is a kind of relay race. You, know, you pass the baton on to the next guy. And hopefully you absorb 
what's gone before. I think it's 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 terrible that you know I taught a class at at the University of North Carolina School of the Arts for a couple of years and. I tried to get the kids to look at older films, and they did. And when they saw them, they liked them. Mm-hmm. But it's just hard to get them to get. That's to, the hurdle, the initial hurdle. To, the, the initial hurdle, yeah. I don't see how you can make movies good well if you don't know what's preceded you. It's like you're you're inventing the wheel, and the wheel has already been invented numerous, <laughs> numerous times. Right. Well, thank you for contributing to the to the wheel. Now, hopefully, people will uh, will appreciate it. Go uh, see well, these. Buried treasures that yes. aren't even buried. Yes, that's right. Thanks a lot. Okay, Scott. With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.